Hey, Reality Family. Welcome to the teaching for this week. Thanks for joining us. Uh, even though it's it's really warm, I hope that you're staying cool. I can definitely empathize with uh, with the heat that I think we're supposed to be getting this weekend. I'm taping this on Friday in the top of the chapel and it is just sweltering here. So if you see me sweating, it's not because I'm nervous, uh, but because I'm joining you in empathizing with the heat. We are continuing on in our series in Genesis 1 called In the Beginning, and I'm going to read our passage for us this morning, starting in verse 26. So please join me in reading along. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They'll rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created the male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. This is God's word. Well, in our uh, study so far, we've had four weeks uh, that have passed. The first week, we looked at a summary of everything that's to come, and then we spent three weeks kind of clearing the ground. The next four weeks, we're going to look at this passage, and specifically this idea of the Imago Dei, what it means to be human and made in the image of God. Uh, and we'll look at it in terms of its, its uh, context in the ancient Near East. What was it saying to the original people? How does it carry out in the story of the Bible? And then, of course, what does it mean as all of us, I am assuming, I don't know who you are, but we're all humans watching this. What does it mean for us today? As This is a definition that profoundly affects us. So today I want to start by looking at two very fundamental truths from this passage about what it means to be human uh, and made in the image of God. The first is this, that to be made in the image of God is a delicate balance of two concepts. So to be human in the Bible is to be made in the image of God, which is a, a delicate balance of two concepts. The first is that we're created. So the, the passage starts, let us make. So we are part of the creation. We are not the creator uh, itself. Our identity or our existence is, is designed to point to something beyond ourselves, something greater than ourselves in the universe, like the rest of the cosmos that we've seen. And our lives owe their existence, according to Genesis 1, to something beyond ourselves, to a creator. So we are a created being, but at the same time, we are created in the image of this eternal creator, God, that we've seen in Genesis 1. So it says, let us make humans in the image of God. Now, the word image here is the word, the, the Hebrew word selim, and we're going to be looking at some of the parts of the definition in the coming weeks. But one of the main um, definitions is that this, was, this word selim was used for images or idols, sorry, or statues in the ancient Near East in its original context. So if there was a king who came, and he conquered a land, he would set up statues of himself there to say, this is my place, this is my land, these are my representatives here. And when God is saying this uh, about us, he is making a profound statement that human beings themselves bear the image of God and we are like his representatives, like his statue, statues and his markers 
in our world. So there's this delicate balance that we are created, we are less than God, but we bear his image. And so that really pulls up the identity and the value of what it means to be human. And this delicate balance, I think, helps us to avoid the two extremes that we see in the ancient world, but also two extremes that we see today. The first extreme is that we are nothing. Uh, And this was a very prevalent idea in the ancient Near East, that human beings are kind of a leftover of creation. Uh, I'm going to share one story with you, sorry, called the Atrahasis Epic. This is one of the creation narratives of Israel's neighbors. In this story, there are different levels of gods. So there's the higher gods, but they don't want to do the work, so they create lesser gods. And so the lesser god's job becomes to make uh, the world and do all of the, the manual labor for the higher gods. At one point in the story, the lesser gods have to pile stones high enough to start creating the mountains. So you can, you can understand and maybe empathize with the kind of work they had to do. So at one point, they get sick of this. They rebel and they come and storm the temple, which is where the higher gods live. They say, we're not going to do this work anymore. So the higher gods, they, they have a, a little um, meeting and they say, that's fair. What we should do is we need to create someone lower than the lower gods to do our work. So they choose one of the gods, they kill him, they slit his throat, his blood drips down into the clay, and they spit on it, and out of that they form human beings. So now it becomes human beings' job to make, uh, do all of the labor for the gods in the world. And interestingly, it works out pretty well at the beginning, but the gods get frustrated with the humans because the humans uh, are, are very noisy. They like to sing and dance a lot. Um, they're super loud, uh, sorry, they, they stink. Uh, the human beings in this story, they smell terrible and they procreate like rabbits. So there's more and more of them all the time. So eventually the higher and lower gods conspire together to get rid of the human beings and they send a drought, they send a famine, and then finally they send a flood, which brings us back to the story of Genesis once again. But the idea in this uh, story, the Atrahasis epic, is that human beings are nothing. We're basically an afterthought of creation made by the gods to serve them. And when we don't serve them, when we just get a little too noisy or have a few too many kids, they want to destroy us. Um, and, and this is a, was very prevalent, like I said, in the ancient Near East, what people thought of what it meant to be human. Now, of course, nobody really uh, follows that today. But I think there's a similar strain of thought in, in our modern society as well. In 2015, uh, Yuval Harari released a book called Sapiens. And six years later, I checked this week, it is number four on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list. So this book is still having a crazy amount of influence. And it's the story of human beings from the beginning of time until now. And he starts the origin story for human beings in chapter one by naming it this, that humans are an animal of no significance. That's the title of the chapter that there is, we have no significance and there is absolutely no purpose to our being. Listen to what he says. Just as people were never created, neither according to the science of biology is there a creator who endows them with anything. Now that I, I include this because this is a great example of scientism, which I talked about a few weeks ago. He is saying the science of biology has proven that we're not created and there's no creator, which of course isn't true. That's, a, that's overreaching. That's scientism. And there's irony there because Harari is actually a historian and not a scientist himself. So I don't know that he should be uh, making those claims for science. He continues, there is only a blind evolutionary process devoid of any purpose leading to the birth of individuals endowed by their creator should be translated simply into born. 
that this is who we are as human beings. Nothing, basically. There's no purpose. We have no created uh, order. We're just born. This actually, I would say, goes even farther than Atrahasis because there's no purpose to what we're doing. At least the original, uh, the people that had Atrahasis as their creation narrative would say, my job as a person and our job as society is to care for the gods and care for the world. Um, in Sapiens, in a story of science that is devoid of God, there's absolutely no purpose. But the Bible is nothing like this. It's, it, it goes against both of these stories. We're made from the dirt in the Bible, but we're not cheap labor. We have the divine breath in us, and we're called to a very high purpose to participate and act like God has acted in the world. We're his images on in the world, not just a mix of nasty stuff that's here to serve him. We have a much higher calling than the Atrahasis ep epic. And our lives are absolutely not devoid of purpose. Genesis 1 is the start of our story where we're given this amazing purpose to carry the story of God and to carry his name into the world. And that's the story of the rest of the Bible is people trying to do that. And it's what each of us are called to live out today. This, this story and narrative gives us so much purpose. And interestingly, Harari, just a few chapters later, says we're just animals, we're insignificant, but we need a story, what he calls an imagined order that he was not willing to say any of these stories are true, but he says an imagined one. That the, and he, he says in his book, there's no way out of the imagined order. All of us have to have these stories that bring our lives meaning and purpose and significance. And when we break out or break down our prison walls and runs towards freedom, we are in fact running towards a more spacious exercise yard of a bigger prison. That we trade these stories for one another and think that we're free by letting go of one and grabbing onto another one. But in fact, we're just trading a smaller prison for a bigger prison yard. And so Harari himself would say the story that we need to be motivated with is humans cooperating together. That's really the, the real big purpose of what we're here for. Um, and it's what's going to sustain us as a species for the longest. And I would say, although I agree that humans are made to cooperate together, in, in Genesis 1 gives us that foundation that we're all made in the image of God. Genesis 1 is an invitation to an even greater and better and bigger story that is not just an imagined order, but, but rooted in this tradition, in this ancient tradition, that we're not only cooperating with one another, but it's a story that can set us on a path of true cooperation by forgiving, learning to forgive and sacrifice and serve those who don't want to cooperate with us, as we see in the God-man Jesus. So Genesis 1 would say we're not simply animals. That's not who we are. And we get, we, we're off balance when we choose just that end. But on the other end of the spectrum uh, it, it is also an equally problematic perspective on what it means to be human. And that's that we are gods. Now in the ancient Near East, only a few people had this perspective. The people that thought they were gods were kings. And if you went around asking someone in the ancient Near East, who is the image of God? That's what they would say. It's this Pharaoh. It's this emperor. It's this king. They are the representation of God in the world. And we as the people are just here to serve them. And by doing so, we serve the gods. Now, again, 3,000 years later, we don't find ourselves in this story whatsoever. But the same or this exact same practice, we don't have uh, emperors or we don't think Justin Trudeau is, is a god. Um, we feel very free to criticize him. But the, the point is to say we still have the same idea running through our culture. Rather than one person as a god, I would say we are all gods. And in the book Sapiens, uh, Harari would agree that we started as animals with no significance, chapter one. 
But the last chapter in the book, the afterword, is called uh, The Animal That Became a God. I've read this before, but I think it's so poignant, so I'm going to read it for us again. 70,000 years ago, Homo sapiens was still an insignificant animal minding its own business in a corner of Africa. Humble beginnings, no purpose. In the following millennia, it transformed itself into the master of an entire planet and the terror of an ecosystem. Today, it stands on the verge of becoming a god, poised to acquire not only eternal youth, but also the divine abilities of creation and destruction. Our evolved abilities and our accumulated knowledge puts us in the category of God, that we have the power over life and death and to manipulate our world, and we treat ourselves, each of us, like gods. That what I want is what I deserve, just like the gods uh, or the kings of ancient, uh, the ancient Near East. And my desires should be the most important thing in our kingdom, and the world should revolve around me. These are probably things we would never say, but this is how our world is set up, that we are the most important. But listen to what Harari says. Despite the astonishing things that humans are capable of doing, we remain unsure of our goals. We seem to be as discontented as ever. We've advanced from canoes to galleys to steamships to space shuttles, but nobody knows where we're going. We are more powerful than ever before, but we have very little to do, uh, with, little idea what to do with all that power. Worse still, humans seem to be more irresponsible than ever. Self-made gods with only the laws of physics to keep us company, we're accountable to no one. We're consequently wreaking havoc on our fellow animals and on the surrounding ecosystem seeking little more than our own comfort and amusement, yet never finding satisfaction. Is there anything more dangerous than dissatisfied and irresponsible gods who don't know what they want? This is the last sentence in his book. I think that um, he's very, he's right on, that we have the power of a categorically like a god today, but this is our problem, that we're more discontented than ever that we have no idea what to do with all of our power, that we're more irresponsible than ever, that we're accountable to no one. And Genesis 1 would say that partly true, we are like gods, we're made in the image of God, but we're designed to be part of this larger story. And all those things that Harari says are just um, symptoms of us losing the story of Genesis 1, that we're called to live in balance. We're not gods, we're created, but we're created in the image of God. We are called to mirror something bigger and that is our purpose and the story that we bear is to carry the name and the, and the image of this God into our world. That he and not we are the main characters of this story. We have a very important place to, a role to fill. We are the pinnacle of creation, but we are still a created being. And our job as human beings and what will bring us fulfillment is actually to be accountable to this God. So we're made in the image of God and in this balance, we're not nothing, we're not gods, but we're created in the image of God, that we are dirt and divine breath. So this is the first thing that I wanted to point out uh, this morning, that that's uh, one implication of what it means to be made in the image of God. But the second one uh, is to be made in the image of God means that every person has a deep value. To be made in the image of God means that every person has a deep value. Now, this passage, Genesis 1, has long been known as the key to human rights and the dignity of all people. And in the West, we've adopted this belief uh, that regardless of creed and race, gender, uh, sexual orientation, that people matter, that everyone has an inherent value to them. The problem is that we've lost this backstory. We've let go of Genesis 1. And so we still hold the belief 
but we don't have the backstory anymore. Here's what Harari says. The idea of equality is inextricably intertwined with the idea of creation. The Americans got this idea of quality from Christianity, which argues that every person has a divinely created soul and that all souls are equal before God. So he's not saying exactly the same thing, but that Genesis 1 is the backstory that allows us to value people. But listen to what he says as he continues. According to the science of biology, people were not created. They've evolved. So pull away that story. And they still, and they certainly, he said, did not evolve to be equal. That there is actually no backstory in our, in our history without God that would point to us being equal. But we still value it. So we value this belief that every person has a value, but we have no backstory for it anymore. We're starting in a different place. And G.K. Chesterton uh, describes our current position or current position like this. As a politician, the modern person will cry out that war is a waste of time. And then as a philosopher, that all life is a waste of time. So the value is that war is a waste of life. Then the backstory is that there's life is a waste of time. There's actually nothing there. A pessimist will denounce a policeman for killing a peasant saying that they have value, and then prove by the highest philosophical principles that the peasant ought to have killed himself. The man of this school goes first to a political meeting where he complains that indigenous people are being treated as if they were beasts. Then he takes his hat and his umbrella and goes on to a scientific meeting where he proves that they practically are beasts. In short, the modern man is always engaged in undermining his own minds. He is saying that without the story behind it, the value, living this value is incoherent and doesn't bring life, and is going to create problems. And so Genesis 1 is the story that we need to live in coherence with these most deeply felt beliefs that we have about the value of humans, something that we feel and know deep in our hearts. And this was, I was reminded of this uh, as I was, I was meeting with a group of pastors uh, that are studying Charles Taylor's A Secular Age. And one of the leaders of this group, his name is Tripp, he talked about doing a child blessing. And in his tradition, they take the child, uh, or they, 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 they don't take the child, sorry. Um, there's no child napping. They, they come to the person's house right after the child is born, like a couple days later, and they do the blessing. Uh, we don't do that in our tradition because we don't want to put the extra pressure on you of making sure that your house is clean uh, right after you've given birth. Um, but he says this is one of the, most, the best moments for him of being a pastor because everyone is so excited and they've all been anticipating and waiting for this baby. And then the miracle of, of this baby being born has just happened. So he says, as a pastor, you come in um, because they need somebody. They don't, they don't have words for how special and amazing this moment is. And they say it's so awesome that they need to find a professional religious person to come and speak some kind of special words over this moment or to draw them into how they actually feel. So he said he just loved to do this, to bring words of blessing to this moment and help people make sense of what was going on, the, the fullness that they felt and the value that they felt of this little human life. So he said, I love doing this. I thought one time I'm going to bring one of the teenagers that are in our youth group to come and help me. Why not share this opportunity with them? You know, this teenager just won mafia the last week and uh, a sword drill. So why not bring them along? So they knew the family. He said they had this uh, baby dedication. He brought a teenager with him. So they're all in the house. They're excited. And the moment comes for the dedication. And he invites this teenager to come. He said the teenager took the baby in his arm. And then I gave him a card. And he just read the words off of it. 
And he read words like this, God, you made and you know and you love this baby completely and intimately. She's made in your image and she carries your story. May your blessing rest on this family and on this baby and on this home. And he said, it went just great. Everyone loved it. It was such a special moment. And he said, on the way out of the house, the teenager looked at him and said, that was awesome. He said, that was amazing. And, and the words that you wrote on that card were so unbelievable. He said, when the moment came, I had no idea what to say to this baby. I, I, one of the first people to hold this child and I had no words to bring to this moment. But the words that you gave me on that card were perfect. Where did you get them? And Tripp looked at the kid and he said, those words that you said have meaning because they're part of our story. That they are the first words that are spoken over people. That you are made in the image of God. And they've been true since the beginning of time and of true of every human being born since that time. And they've been spoken over children in our tradition for millennia. And when you read those words, you're acting out that story. That you as an image of God are taking these ancient words from our living God and you're blessing this child, another image of God, and you're proclaiming over them what everybody knows and feels to be true in that moment, that it's a moment of blessing and that this child, this vulnerable baby is worth protecting with everything that we have. He said, this is our story. And this, I think, is the backstory of the value that we hold. I just think, what story is better? That we're insignificant people, that we don't really matter, but we have to grab a story so we can work together. Or this story that the Bible offers that we know to be matching along with the value that we hold. Which one would you prefer to be spoken over your life? Genesis 1 is this invitation and this call to the truth that we, we know and we recognize in our values that each person has dignity. Before I move on, I just want to say, I, I get that by saying this uh, at this time, in the wake of another week where we've uh, found more uh, remains at a residential school, may sound like the most tone-deaf statement for a professional Christian to be making. Because the church, who have been tasked with carrying on the story and proclaiming the value of every human life, um, has used, we see again, their position to destroy generations of Aboriginal children and human lives. And, and so I say that with that huge shadow in the background, and please don't hear me trying to minimize it. But I will say this, the way I think one of the ways that we call them this out and we can say that it is wrong and atrocious is actually not by letting go of the story of Genesis 1, but by doubling down there and having it as our backstory that each one of those children did have value and ultimate dignity because they were made in the image of God, which is what makes it so tragic. But let's not let go of the backstory and let's join with each other and join with our Aboriginal brothers and sisters in lament um, in asking for forgiveness and learning how to change that these things don't happen again. So according to Genesis 1, everyone has worth because they're made in the image of God. And this is a story that we're invited to, to make sense of this belief that we do have, that people are valuable. And, and we need Genesis 1, which is a firm belief that everyone has value. It's a firm starting place for each one of us. But I want to close by saying this. You know, Genesis 1 isn't just a proclamation that everyone has value but that each of us has value, that you are valuable. And no matter who you are watching this, that you are a person of great value, 
and of worth to God, and that you have ultimate dignity. You're a reflection of God. And this is one of the key messages of Genesis 1. And it's something that our culture is so great at saying. You know, my kids are in public school in grade 4 and grade 2, and every day they hear this, that you are great, that you can do great things, that you're wonderful. But in Christian culture, we may believe this, but I think we tend to downplay this kind of language that we have ultimate value. And instead, I think of when we think of who we are, our origin text often defaults to Genesis 3. If you're not familiar, Genesis 3 is known as the fall. So it's a couple chapters later that the first humans in the story of the Bible, Adam and Eve, uh, don't live out the delicate balance of what it means to be human, but rather they try to be gods themselves, to choose to write their own story. And because of that, they become cursed. And as our representatives, the curse that they get is passed on to every human. It becomes something that infiltrates every society, every culture, every time. And so this is part of the story of the Bible. Genesis 3 is in our Bible. And when we look around to our world, we don't see a Genesis 1 world. We see that there is a world that is marred by sin, whatever your language might be, that it is not as it should be, that something is broken and something is wrong. But here's my problem, that I think as Christians, we tend to give that primacy in our story, that we place Genesis 3 before Genesis 1. We say things like, who you are is someone who's cursed, that there's nothing good in you. As some um, recent uh, theologians would say, like, you're a worm, you're garbage. That's your primary identity. Let me give you a couple of awkward examples maybe of this in my own life. When I was a teenager, I needed to prepare to become an adolescent. So my parents found this book, Preparing for Adolescence. Seemed like a good match at the time. Um, And when I see this book, I think, was I born in the 50s? How old? I feel like I'm not that old, but this book looks so old. Uh, Of course, there's this cool guy with the jean jacket on it. But the main idea can be seen in this massive caution sign. That there's something wrong with you. That the road ahead of you is one that's marked with a lot of problems. And uh, my mom would read this with me, uh, which made it awkward, um, reading, you know, your body is changing. Do you feel awkward about that? It's like, I feel awkward about this whole thing. But we would, we would read it once a week, I think, and um, one chapter every week. So my mom would come and she would read the first few chapters. And the main metaphor in these first few chapters is that you're a train running off the tracks. That's what adolescence is. It's essentially this idea that you're cursed, that there is a huge problem. And the funny thing was, we would read it, uh, you know, three or four consecutive weeks in a row, but then inevitably we would miss three or four consecutive weeks in a row. So then we would go back to the beginning, be like, oh, we probably forgot everything. Let's do it again. So I reread this chapter again and again and again. You are a train running off the tracks. And this was the primary message I got from this, a Christian book is that there is, adolescence is just a big problem and I am a big problem. And that got parlayed as I got older into messages from from purity culture, that I was a teenager in the 90s. And uh, there's this idea that if you've, your job is to remain pure and if you failed in this area, if you stepped over lines, you're basically done. You're no use and nobody's going to want you. I remember at this time, there was this thing that uh, they would do at the youth conferences where the, the speaker who would come, he would bring a rose onto stage and it would be this pristine red rose. 
And then he would pass it around to everybody in the group. And he would say, this is what a pure person looks like. And after he had passed it around and everybody had touched it, it inevitably would come back and it would be broken and petals would be falling off and the stem would be bent. And he would say like, who wants this rose? Nobody. And that was the idea that you, if, if anything, you had done anything wrong or there'd been you know, abuse or trauma in your background, that you were basically this broken piece of, this broken flower that nobody really wanted. This is the way that we put Genesis 3 above Genesis 1. Uh, similarly, when I learned how to do evangelism, this was kind of the primary idea that your job in sharing the gospel with someone was to convince them that they sucked, that they weren't any good in and of themselves. I remember I, I heard Rob Bell do a critique of this. That he said, like, evangelism is basically going around to someone and being like, hey, dude, I have a message for you. You're an abomination. And he said most people would be like, I, I, you know, I was feeling pretty good about myself. I just got a raise until why would you come and say something like that? That it's so out of step with who they are. But this is what it looks like when we start in Genesis 3. And this is a huge part of Christian culture. Now, is there some truth to all of these things? Sure. You know, was I a train running off the tracks? Yeah, I probably still am a train running off the tracks in, in some ways. Does God have a design for sex and sexuality? Yeah, absolutely he does. Is there a darkness in our hearts that Jesus comes to ransom us from and powers of darkness that he comes to ransom us from? 100%. We just spent 18 weeks looking at the Gospel of Mark where Jesus says that. But that's not the start of our story. Our, start, our story doesn't start in Genesis 3, it starts in Genesis 1. And sometimes as Christians, we get so focused on what we aren't that we forget who we are, that you're made in the image of God. That's who you are. You're valuable and you're worthwhile. And when God creates, he saves the prized position for you. And these other narratives and stories that we carry from Genesis 3 are just uh, frightening stories and guilt-inducing stories, and they don't represent what it means or what Genesis 1 is trying to say to us, that we are valuable and beautiful and God has a, a place for us in his story. And when we start with Genesis 3, we often focus on the darkness and there can be this fear that the darkness is winning. But the story of Genesis 1 is a story of the creation that God speaks into the darkness, that he calms the tohu wabohu and the chaos waters. And there is light in our universe, that God makes a creation of a blessed a blessing and calls it all good. And God says, I have started this story. This is where the story starts. And I have invited you as a human to be the pinnacle of the story, that you carry it on into the world. And when God looks at you, no matter what has happened to you, that he says, you're a person actually I long to put my name on, that you will carry my name into the world, that you will carry my image to these far off outposts of the world. That's the start of our story. And all of us will live with Genesis 3 moments in our lives that tell us that we're not valuable. Maybe you feel, will feel like a giant failure. You know, I failed God, or I failed my family, or, or I've just failed myself. Or you feel the shame of not living up to your potential and to your dreams. I you know, think I don't I hear the story of God. I, I don't deserve to carry his name. You know, maybe I go as far as to say I don't even deserve to have breath. I don't know if my life has any purpose and I feel like nothing and no one. And all of us have these moments. And if that's how you feel, I just want you to remember that in the darkest moments of the Bible where Genesis 3 is emphasized, the truths of Genesis 1 always come in right beside them. 
that although there is darkness and there is curse, that people are still valuable, that you are valuable. You know, in Genesis 3, the story of the fall, like I said, the people rebel and they experience the curse. And one of the things that happens because of that curse is that they know they are naked and ashamed. The open relationship that they had with one another um, is now closed and they have to turn away from each other. But God, at the end of that story, provides a sacrifice for them. He makes clothes for them. And he's saying, even though you have just walked away from me, that you've broken my heart, that you've rebelled, and that's going to cascade into our world and into brokenness, you are still valuable. I want to preserve you. I want to carry on my work through you. And I'm going to create a space where you can not be ashamed. And this story carries into the Gospels. And it says that Jesus, when he comes, he's the ultimate image of God, God himself as a human. And he enters into this world of curse and darkness. But in his death, he speaks a word of value over us. That although we live in darkness and that each of us commit, um, um, contributes sorry, to this curse in our world, his death says that you are worth my very life. And I sacrifice myself for you. And in his resurrection, he invites us to be the reset, invites us to the reset of Genesis 1. That darkness does never have the last word as long as there is this great eternal creator God. And that his light can enter into our lives through the person and the work of Jesus. And we're invited back to this story of God where the light shines in and we are invited back to carry this story and be his images into the world. Would you close with me in prayer? God, thank you for this word. Please teach us today what it means to live in this delicate balance. We're all prone to get off either by going off to the side of, of just thinking we're nothing and being animals or to elevating ourselves to the status of God. And would you invite us back to Genesis 1 to the story of living in this balance? And when um, I pray too that you would teach us what it means that every person is valuable, that we would not only believe that story, but that it would be something that we'd be able to sacrifice for as we see Christ doing. And I also pray for each person that's listening, that this word, that they are valuable, that you love and you care for them would be something that is preached deeply over their lives. And while we know that Genesis 3 is true, may it not be uh, the, the last word in our lives or the primary word in our story, but instead where we trust your words from Genesis 1, that we are made as humans in your image, that you have blessed and called us good, that you affirm our value. And so we ask for the presence of Christ in our lives, for that, that word to be spoken over us, but also the word of Jesus to come, to renew us, that we would take on his life and his death and the hope of his resurrection, and that we would live into what it means to be your image today. We pray these things together in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.